This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. This week we have an interview with Tony, aka the Dino Geek, you may know from Instagram. And his Dino Den. Yeah. Oh man, it's sweet. <laughs> we also have Dinosaur of the Day, Microceratus. Another Jurassic Park Jurassic World dinosaur. Excellent. And we have a bunch of dinosaur news. But first, we would like to thank some of our patrons. And this week we would like to thank Kyle, Brendan, the Tolbert family, Sean Tanagaki, Remy Rodriguez, Marcy, Rohan, and Bradley. Yeah, thank you so much. We really appreciate all your support. So jumping right into the dinosaur news, there is a new dinosaur, but I'm going to get to that later because I think this story is more exciting. What? Rarely do I find a story more exciting than a new dinosaur. In this case, I think it is. So there's an article written by Matthew McLean and others and published in P-A-L-A-I-O-S. It's a place we haven't really talked about before, a journal. It's in all capitals and isn't an acronym for anything, even though it looks like it should be. It's kind of weird. But anywho, they are talking about a Tyrannosaur metatarsal, which is the middle of the foot, basically. It's sort of in our feet. It's that part that includes the arch. It's the middle of the foot. If you look at a skeleton, it almost looks like the feet have these super long toes because there's in the metatarsals, it's all held together by like the flesh of the foot. And then the toes at the end aren't held together in the same way. Same thing with hands, you see it. But anywho, they found just one metatarsal from a tyrannosaur and they found it in the Lance Formation, which is from the latest Cretaceous, meaning near the very end of the dinosaurs. With all the big dinosaurs. Yes. So a lot of tyrannosaur tyrannosaurus going around back then and also you know a couple of other tyrannosaurs and the lance formation if you're not familiar is in western north america basically south dakota and wyoming at the time of the lance formation the only known tyrannosaurs were nanotyrannus and t-rex in that area and obviously some people consider nanotyrannus to be just a younger version of tyrannosaurus rex so To some people, there's really just (laughs) T-Rex in the formation. Depends on how you look at it. So what makes this metatarsal interesting, because just finding one foot bone from a tyrannosaur in the Lance Formation isn't really anything groundbreaking, is that this one had some interesting scratches on it. And the scratches appear to be caused by biting. So biting the foot. Yeah, something bit its foot, (laughs) it looks like. And 
it turns out that there are ichnotaxa named for different types of scratches. Oh, wow. And that was my rabbit hole this week. <laughs> I could see that. Did you start off with the scratches from the mating dances? No. So these aren't that kind of scratches. These are scratches in bone. Oh, I see. Yeah. So some, a lot of times ichnotaxa are things that the dinosaur created by interacting with the environment, like footprints or coprolite or the scratch marks that you're talking about where they're basically scraping at the ground for a mating dance potentially. But it can also be things like this where a dinosaur bites into a bone and leaves a scratch in that bone. You can actually name an ichnotaxa or basically a species characteristic from that marking itself, which is something I had never seen before. The two in this paper were only named nine years ago because I also read that paper. And it's not really used much in dinosaur paleontology. There's a lot of descriptions about bite marks and bones, and they sort of try to assign them to different groups, and they'll describe them as, oh, that one's more like a puncture, and this one's more like a scrape. But they weren't assigning ichnotaxa, as far as I could tell, until this paper nine years ago, at least for this type of bite. So the one that's relevant to the theropod in this paper is there were two scratches. One of them is called nethicness parallelum with a silent k potentially yeah i think that's how you say it and it literally translates to parallel scrapes so that's exactly what it looks like basically if you look at these scrapes under a microscope it looks like it was scratched by a tiny rake so very evenly spaced scratch marks and a lot of them in a row the original one that it was named on looked like it had about 20 of these grooves in a row, sort of like if you're raking sand in a Zen garden sort of look. <laughs> Is that if you have a mouthful of teeth then? Well, so it turns out that these were really close together. They're only about half a millimeter apart. So it turns out that it's actually caused by the denticles. And if you remember, denticles are tooth serrations. So if you scrape your tooth sort of sideways along a bone. So it'd be one tooth. And all yeah. those serrations. Wow. Exactly. So you kind of pull the tooth along sideways like you're trying to strip flesh, for example, off of a foot. Then that's one way to do it. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, they think it's caused when the, the serrations of the tooth are dragged across the bone. And in the original paper, they kind of have a curved shape to them. So they're still parallel the whole time, but they sort of make a curve. And they say that's because the thing biting turned its head mid-bite. And so that kind of left this like curving scratch, but it's a series of parallel scratches. And it, it also turns out the original paper talks about sharks and whales and how some of them have similar serrations and leave similar marks. So potentially, if something got washed out to sea, it could have these marks on it and it would be really hard to tell if it was caused by something with serrated teeth from land or the sea, you wouldn't really be able to tell. Predators everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Luckily, in this case, it looks like it was deposited on land. And they managed to replicate the same sort of scratch mark in Komodo dragons. Of course. Yeah. And they've extended it. They think that the most common places you see these are from theropods because theropods have a lot of denticles on their teeth. And in this case, since they're about half a millimeter apart... It lines up with the spacing on T-Rex teeth. So they're pretty sure that a T-Rex was the thing that was chewing on this Tyrannosaurus metatarsal. Uh-oh. And that led to, I believe, the title of the paper, which says Tyrannosaur cannibalism. <laughs> <laughs> but it's kind of weird. It's They're calling it cannibalism, 
but they're very specific in the paper to say that we can't tell if the metatarsal was definitely from a Tyrannosaurus rex or if it was from an unknown Tyrannosaurid from the time period because just having this little part of a foot bone is a little bit hard to tell the exact species because usually you're looking at skulls or hips or vertebrae or things like that to try to figure out the species and not just a single bone in the foot. So it's not necessarily cannibalism because it's not, we don't know if it's the same species. Exactly. But I mean, if a human ate a monkey, would we call that cannibalism? People, you definitely consider it weird because we're closely (laughs) related, (laughs) but probably not really cannibalism. I guess it would be, yeah, pretty much like a, a certain type of chimpanzee I think we're most closely related to. Whatever our closest relative is, if you ate that. Don't birds eat birds, though? Yeah, and fish eat each other and baby fish of their own species all the time, too. So, definitely wouldn't be out of the question. Because there have been Nanotyrannus named from the area, the authors put a little bit of effort into determining whether or not it was still growing because this metatarsal looks like it would be the size of an adult or full-size Nanotyrannus, but that would still be a juvenile T-Rex size if you think they're separate genera. And when they looked at it, the histology of the bone by kind of cutting into it and looking at the texture of it, it looked like it was still growing, which means they think it was a juvenile T-Rex and not a Nanotyrannus. Then they talked a little bit too about why this dinosaur might have been chewing (laughs) on a Tyrannosaur foot. One suggestion was maybe it was infanticide Kind of like with lions where you kill off the new young whenever you're around them, basically. Oh, the potential threats. Yeah. But the juvenile was probably big enough to live on its own, so that's unlikely. Another possibility is that maybe it got bit while it was in combat, say, fighting over a mate or something. Bit on the foot, though? Yeah, so that's why they don't think that's the case, because if you're going to do that kind of thing, maybe you'd bite on the head or on the side or something. And then there were also multiple bites. So it'd be kind of weird if you're fighting with somebody to bite them on the foot multiple times. Plus the type of bite it is with that sort of scraping along, removing flesh bite isn't the kind of bite you do when you're fighting. That would be more like a puncture sort of bite. Do they know for sure that this specimen was alive when that was happening? No, they don't know. Okay. So it could have been after. Yeah. For some reason. I mean, it it doesn't look like it healed afterwards, or at least they didn't indicate that. So whether or not it was killed or scavenged, they can't really tell. They do say that since the feet don't have a lot of meat, this is sort of like what we were talking about last week, the predator that kills the animal tends to go after a real good meaty part first, which in dinosaurs is like the upper leg, maybe the tail, some of these spots that have big muscles in them. The foot (laughs) is not your first choice at all. So the fact that it was going for the foot could indicate that it was being scavenged. It's just kind of a guess. I have a couple guesses, really out there guesses. One, I was thinking of Game of Thrones and uh, what is the name of that house? The Flayed Man house? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe if dinosaurs were... (laughs) This is assuming... (laughs) <laughs> somehow dinosaurs had their own societies and somehow it got you think really it was complicated. Being tortured? Yeah, yeah. Or maybe it was a relative and the juvenile or the adult nanotyrannus, whichever one it was, was dead and a loved one was sad and thinking, No, don't be dead. Here, let me see if you're dead. 
and then scraped all the meat off its foot. Just to see, you know, get a reaction. So it's either like the Boltons from Game of Thrones. Boltons, thank you. Yeah. Or it's a really horrible way to test if something is alive. <laughs> I told you they're out there theories. Okay. <laughs> or not really theories even. Yeah. <laughs> Ideas. <laughs> yeah. It, that's interesting. Probably not, but those are the two thoughts I had while you were talking. <laughs> I think it's more likely that it was just killed or scavenged. Probably, but sometimes it's nice to put a backstory in. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> Thinking of ideas for your next book, I see. Yeah. <laughs> and then one final comment. The authors wanted to address the issue of why they, a T-Rex would even bite on a bone like this because usually T-Rex seems to just sort of swallow bones talked about their extreme osteophagy before they've got teeth that are good for breaking bones apart and a lot of times they swallow them and we know that because we've seen bones that have tyrannosaurus tooth mark sort of things on them and then also have etching from stomach acid so you know that it was swallowed and went through the digestive system but this one doesn't have any etching so it looks like a t-rex came up scraped the meat off the foot for some reason and then continued on its way so who knows don't know why it happened, but we know it did. Think of the stories you could create around it. <laughs> like flaying a foot. <laughs> or trying to wake up a loved one. Okay. You should let go of that one. There's no way. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody tries to wake somebody up by peeling their flesh off. That's insane. That's true. <laughs> you make a good point. So on to our new dinosaur out of that rabbit hole. There is a paper published by Zhao Yinwei and Li Li in global geology and they named a new dinosaur it's called micro enantiornis vulgaris and apparently micro enantiornis is just because it's a small enantiornithine aren't they always small pretty much so this one's extra small it's small it's not that much smaller than usual and then vulgaris translates to common so I guess they think it was common. I don't really know why they picked common because most of the article is in Chinese and I can't read Chinese yet. Hopefully someday, but not today. <laughs> I think this is the first one they found and they just found one. So it seems weird to call it common. Maybe they're hoping to find more. Could be. Yeah. They found it in Chaoyang in Liaoning, which is the area of China that's west of Korea, but close to North Korea. It's estimated to be about 120 million years old putting it in the early Cretaceous, and it is pretty small. It only measures about 12 centimeters or about five inches long from the top of its head to the bottom of its claws. And the reason I'm saying the measurement in that weird sort of direction <laughs> is because the way that this dinosaur got squished when it got fossilized, it reminds me of a person doing the chicken dance and doing it specifically on tiptoes. So it's got its arms sort of folded and to its sides, and it's sort of upright also. So its head is above its tail and its feet, and then its feet stick straight down. So that's sort of the position it's in. And when you measure from the top of the head to the bottom of the feet, it's only about five inches. Can you really do the chicken dance on toes? I don't know. That may be doable, but not as with as much gusto as <laughs> on flat feet. I don't know. Anyway. It probably would have been holding onto a branch, really, so it would have had a similar sort of foot posture, but it wouldn't have gotten fossilized on a branch. Anywho, it was definitely squished because the skull is pretty fractured and it has that appearance like those Archaeopteryx and a lot of these 
small birds where it's kind of smashed into a single plane and then they don't even bother trying to excavate it all the way out. They just kind of excavate out one side and leave the other half sort of buried in rock. So it looks like a lot of enantiornithines that are prepared this way. Maybe that's what makes it common. <laughs> yeah, that could be. It does have a couple sort of interesting looking features. It has a short, sharp beak, shorter than a lot of other enantiornithines. And its mouth is closed, so I can't tell if there are teeth in it. I didn't see mentions of teeth anywhere in the paper. And a lot of times enantiornithines have teeth, but I couldn't tell if this one did. And otherwise, it just kind of looks like a lot of these small early birds from China. There's a huge list of them piling up. So That's cool. Yeah. Makes sense, too, if you think about the number of birds there are. Oh, yeah. There's like 10,000 birds right now. So we've got a long ways to go in <laughs> the Cretaceous. We've got a story about some dinosaur tracks. So this person, Bonnie, of this couple, Trinity and Bonnie, they're a nomadic couple. They write on 43 blue doors about their travels. And they recently posted about these 10,000 dinosaur tracks in Cal Orco, which means Wall of Cal in Bolivia. And it's just outside of Sucre. And according to Bonnie, quote, these prints include a 347-meter trail left by a baby T-Rex to whom they have posthumously awarded the moniker Johnny Walker. There are tons of dinosaur tracks, big and small, all in different directions. And it took Bonnie and Trinity 13 hours to get to this place, even though it was only 75 miles away from where they started. And that's 13 hours if you were to do this yourself, only if there's no landslides or flat tires or protests or other obstacles. And apparently it must have taken them longer than 13 hours, actually, thinking about it, because they did have to wait several hours for their bus and they had three tires blow out and the bus only had one spare tire. So after the first one, it was probably a rough ride. But the track site sounds really cool. It's vertical. And a lot of the tracks show that the dinosaurs were running. There's no fossils that have been found at the site, at least not yet, I don't think. But the tracks were found in the 1990s when the Fran Francesca Concrete Company was mining the area. And the wall, unfortunately, has been eroding since then because of a number of things. Gravity, rain, and earthquakes. There's a large slab that actually fell off back in 2010. Oof. Yeah, but Bolivia has applied to have the site become a UNESCO World Heritage Site and get funding to preserve it, but it hasn't been approved yet. Yeah, it'd be nice. I think they mentioned that it could be gone by 2020 oh, if yeah. they don't get funding because it's nearly vertical. I think it's at like a 75 degree angle and very tall. Like you said, well, you said 347 meters, but I think it's like 200 feet tall or something like that. So it's got the tracks are sort of at a diagonal across it but it's basically like walking up next to a sheer cliff with yeah. a bunch of dinosaur tracks and it looks really amazing the pictures are great but it's oh man getting there sounds rough it does <laughs> also 2020 when i first read that i thought oh that's still a little bit of time but no that is less than two years yeah that's really soon <laughs> but i think they said last time when that slab fell off it exposed new footprints underneath it oh wow so if you're lucky you could scan them all. Hopefully, they've all been scanned by drones already with photogrammetry at least, I hope. And then if it falls off and there's more underneath it, then it's just sort of like an ever-changing 
landscape prints. <laughs> that would be fine. Kind of like teeth. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just like dinosaur teeth. Not the worst thing. No. And up next, the mapping and analytics company called Esri UK has created a map with every dinosaur discovery location in the UK. Oh, cool. Yeah, it is really cool. I think after looking a little more closely at it, they just scraped the paleobiology database that we covered before. (laughs) (laughs) It's not a bad way to go about it, at least for a V1. No, yeah. So, I mean, it's probably not anything that you couldn't have found before. But it might be easier to find. Exactly. I think it is a little more user-friendly if you're in the UK because it's basically just the UK, like I mentioned. And then there's also some bits that are down in the English Channel and up above the UK too. So some of it's sort of in the ocean, but all UK adjacent. And yeah, it's really cool. It really highlights the cliffs where Mesozoic rocks stick out because, you know, like Mary Anning and other paleontologists would walk along the beach and just find these fossils falling out of the cliffs. And it still happens today. You're technically allowed to collect them if you find them pop out, but you should donate them to a museum if you find them. Anyway, (laughs) (laughs) you can really see these spots where the Jurassic and Cretaceous, I think it's mostly Jurassic rocks, are in the UK because there's a whole bunch of little dots right along the coast in two or three spots. So it's pretty interesting. And then there's also a lot of spots throughout the UK, a lot of local websites for different local localities in the uk took this information and said here's all the dinosaur discoveries in x county or in x city and they just named the ones that were the (laughs) the map includes from their area so that's kind of funny but yeah you should look at this instead because it's a little more thorough and it's dinosaurs on a map so what, what more could you want pretty great more maps more dinosaurs i guess so they also listed this one from the paleobiology database, a ranking of the dinosaur discoveries by country, which I think they also just pulled out of paleobiology database. You can do these mass exports of data and do whatever you want with them. It's a really handy tool, that paleobiology database. But their ranking of dinosaur discoveries, they said dinosaurs found, but I think it's actually more like published papers from different areas. They have the U.S. as number one at 5,000, then Canada at about a third of that. And then Spain and China are basically tied for third and fourth, then Mongolia, then France, and then the U.K. So they listed it as (laughs) the U.K. comes in seventh, beating 191 other countries in the database. (laughs) It's all how you spin it. (laughs) It really is. They got over 500 discoveries, though, so that's pretty good. Solid. Yeah, for such a small country, especially. They have at least one whole aisle yeah. of dinosaurs. <laughs> yeah, that was in like the top. They also had a listing of which areas of the UK have the most discoveries. And I think Dinosaur Isle slash the Isle of Wight was like second or third. And that's a little island too with tons of discoveries. So it helps also to have a ton of paleontologists in your country. <laughs> I think that's another thing this could be a ranking of. And funding. Yes. Amount of paleontologists with funding. <laughs> Because I think Mongolia should be much higher on this list, but a lot of their fossils aren't named and placed on a map. They get sold and all that kind of stuff. Maybe someday. Yeah. We have an update as well about the video of the dinosaur puppet in the Air National Guard, which we talked about last week. And three members of the Tennessee Air National Guard have now been removed from their posts because of this video. 
and that includes the colonel who administered the oath, Master Sergeant Robin Brown who took the oath, and the official who recorded the ceremony. So, a lot of controversy going on there. Yeah, I'm surprised they even removed the person who took the video. I was surprised too. Yeah. Didn't even think about that. In happier news though, (laughs) we've got, I would call this a dinosaur love story. So, a man was dressed in an inflatable T-Rex costume and he ran the London Marathon and then proposed to his fiance afterwards in the costume. And he, just for fun, he registered under the name Rory, R-O-A-R-Y. She said yes, which is good because it was filmed. (laughs) Yeah. They've been together eight and a half years. And it was a really sweet video. It shows him give her the ring and then a lot of happy screaming in the background Apparently, this guy runs many marathons in his T-Rex suit. Oh, really? Yeah. Though he recently posted a photo of a new Velociraptor suit that he'll be getting. I'm pretty sure it's the Jurassic World one. Oh, cool. Yeah. Because his T-Rex <laughs> costume is getting run down. I can't believe he runs a full marathon in that suit. I get tired of being in it after walking a couple hundred feet. I cannot imagine running even one mile in it. Get really warm in it, too. And it sort of deflates when you move a lot. I don't know. Maybe he tapes it or seals it or maybe increases the speed of the fan somehow. But when you move, it squishes some of the air out and it starts to sort of collapse around you when you move too much. Also, the tail dragging is hard to deal with. I don't know how he does it. That's the amazing thing to me. The proposal is like, yeah, so he proposed. But <laughs> ran a marathon, and apparently several marathons in this T-Rex suit is crazy. Let's see where your priorities are. <laughs> yeah. Anybody can propose. <laughs> Not anybody can run a marathon in this inflatable T-Rex suit. I don't want to run a marathon in a costume. <laughs> you don't want to run a marathon at all. Yeah, but especially not in a costume. <laughs> Next, on May 2nd, which is actually the day that this episode is coming out, so today, if you're listening... That the day that this episode's being released. <laughs> you know, we give you lots of notice sometimes. <laughs> At 7 p.m., you can see National Geographic Live's Spinosaurus Lost Giant of the Cretaceous at the Royal Theater in Victoria, British Columbia, in Canada. So if you happen to be in Victoria, you should go. Nizar Ibrahim talks about his search for dinosaurs and how he found a Spinosaurus after the first known Spinosaurus specimens were destroyed in World War II which we talked about when we covered Spinosaurus as the dinosaur of the day. And he was also a National Geographic Emerging Explorer in 2014, and then in 2015 a TED Fellow. And he's also found fossil footprints and flying reptiles, so it sounds like it'll be a really interesting talk. Yeah, that's cool. The tickets look kind of expensive, though. I think they were like 50 bucks. Yeah, but the story that I'm sure he's sharing. Yeah. Spinosaurus, it was lost, and then he found another one, but... If I'm remembering correctly, there were poachers involved and the mustached man yeah. in appearance. All this crazy stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is definitely a good story. And Spinosaurus is just awesome. Thanks to Peter who shared this next one with us via Facebook. So on May 1st, the day before this episode comes out, <laughs> the Arizona Museum of Natural History unveiled its new Acrocanthosaurus which is a sculpture that looks like it's breaking out of the side of the museum. Nice. Yeah, and the picture looks pretty good. The side of the building looks like it's cracked around the body, and then the body is in between some windows. You kind of look at it like, how would this actually happen? Because the way the side is just cracking out. It's like the Kool-Aid man. It's a 
Kool-Aid Ancrocanthosaurus. Yeah. And <laughs> sideways. Yeah. <laughs> well, with a Kool-Aid man, he's kind of always oh, wide. Oh, that's true. That's true. No matter which way is sideways. This Acrocanthosaurus also looks like it could easily fall down. So they did a good job with that effect. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I think it's like life-size too, right? It looks I like it. I think so, yeah. I love so, a good dinosaur sculpture. Well, yeah, Peter, if you check it out, let us know what you think. Or anyone else who might go to the Arizona Museum of Natural History. I hear it's a good one. Also in Arizona, Sonorosaurus is now the official state dinosaur. All right. Totally didn't see that coming. <laughs> no, we've only been talking about its progress and the, the landslide support for the last month or two. But basically, it was signed into law by the governor. And that means that now there is an official state dinosaur in Arizona. All right. There was some that thought that it should have gone to Scutellosaurus, but Scutellosaurus is a really important dinosaur because it's a basal thyreophoran, which is the group which later split into stegosaurs and ankylosaurs and is just all around the best group of dinosaurs. Not the best. It's a cool dinosaur, but not the best. Yeah. I mean, Scutellosaurus, although being very important taxonomically, is not particularly exciting to look at. Because it's a lot smaller, it doesn't have really intense armor, definitely doesn't have a tail club or any sorts of plates down its back or any of those really exciting things that later thyreophorans have. Whereas Sonorosaurus is this huge sauropod, which lots of people like. And it's a nice name. Yeah, that's a good point. I think that's really what gave it the leg up on Scutellosaurus. Aside from being difficult to say, it's not a part of Arizona, <laughs> unlike Sonorosaurus. So hopefully Sonorosaurus stays the name of Sonorosaurus and it doesn't get synonymized with anything or changed for other reasons because that's what happened to Texas and now it's all messed up there. <laughs> Although Texas might make another amendment. Yeah, they should, even though it's not named after Texas anymore. Oh yeah, that's true. Oh, that's another story. Which we talked about in a previous episode. Yes. Next, thanks to Stephen who shared this one with us via Facebook. Windsor Comic Con in Ontario, Canada will have a Jurassic Park experience this fall at the Coliseum at Caesars Windsor from September 29th to 30th of this year. There's no prices yet, and they'll announce them closer to the event, though kids under 10 can get in free to the Comic Con with one paid adult. And the experience, they said it's going to include the Jurassic Park Jeep, a lot of merch and memorabilia, and a Triceratops, as well as lots of activities for kids. Nice. Yeah, I didn't realize there even was a Comic-Con in Ontario, but I've heard that there are tons of Comic-Cons everywhere now. That's probably the main thing that could get me to go to a Comic-Con, It's dinosaur stuff. Well, that's getting more popular. That's good. But speaking of Jurassic Park, so this, <laughs> now we're going to get into a whole bunch of Jurassic Park, Jurassic World news, which I think this might happen every week until Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom comes out. Jurassic World, the exhibition, is now in Paris until September 2nd. It's at La Cite du Cinema, and you can explore Jurassic World as a VIP guest and get close up to Velociraptor and T-Rex and see Brachiosaurus. And we've actually talked about this exhibition before. It's been in Melbourne and Chicago, and Jack Horner collaborated on it. And I hope it comes to California someday, or at least back to the U.S., and then we can try to actually make a trip yeah yeah when i was in chicago we couldn't really make it out there but yeah it was also in philadelphia you skipped over oh philadelphia yes i think it was it went from melbourne 
to Philadelphia, then to Chicago, and now to Paris. Oh, so it's probably not going to go back to North America for a while. It could. I mean, it did the Midwest and then the East Coast. Might go to Canada and miss the West Coast. Maybe. There's a lot more people on the West Coast than there are in Canada, but could be. It looks really awesome, though. I saw some new videos of it from their grand opening in Paris, and it looks great. Really cool animatronics. A lot more than just, you know, mouth flopping, open and close kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, they put a lot of effort into it. Yeah, I'd really like to see it in person. But it usually goes to places for like six months. I think it's there till September. So we'll see. Maybe it'll come closer. <laughs> In more Jurassic World news, thanks to Adam who told us about this one via Instagram. So in June, Australia Post will be releasing a stamp pack for Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Unfortunately, I couldn't find any details, but it's going to cost 23 Australian dollars. And they already have a Jurassic Park 25th anniversary stamp pack for $12. And that one features all the really popular dinosaurs. You've got raptors and T-Rex and Brachiosaurus and more, so... It'll be cool to see the Fallen Kingdom ones. Yeah, Australia goes hard at these dinosaurs. They also release coins periodically with different Australian dinosaurs, like Australovenator. Oh, yeah. it's a good one. Because why not? Yeah, I think the U.S. should release a, a coin series of dinosaurs. That would, oh, like the quarters? Yeah. You mean like the different national parks and stuff like that? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Although not every state has a state dinosaur. Oh, true. They've both been by state, haven't they? You could do it based on, you could just do fossils from each state and then... Some would be dinosaurs, some would be other fossils. Probably about half or three quarters would be dinosaurs. That'd be pretty cool, too. <laughs> yeah, let's do that. Let's write our secretary of the treasury, <laughs> whoever that is. <laughs> and last, another Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom item. The Paste Magazine reported that Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom will have more dinosaur animatronics than any other Jurassic Park or Jurassic World movies except for the original. That is awesome. Yeah. In an interview, producer Frank Marshall said, quote, the process of the animatronics is so advanced now from what it used to be, end quote. And he also said that in the original Jurassic Park, quote, they were working with hydraulics. Everything now is it's mostly servos and stuff like that. There are guys at joysticks, but there are still puppeteers making it breathe and making that head turn and doing all the rest of that stuff. They're all dressed in black and they spend a lot of time in yoga studios because they work like that for years. It's amazing. They're really talented, end quote. I had no idea that the originals were all hydraulics. That is complicated. Servos are a lot easier because literally, like you say, you can just use a remote control and do whatever you want. Yeah. I think when they did the Dinosaurs TV show, it was servos too because they made their eyes blink and stuff like that. I don't think that was hydraulics. No. That was around the same time, so I'm kind of surprised that they did hydraulics for the original. Different company? I suppose. And they're a lot bigger. That's true, because they were doing life-size. Yeah, that T that original T-Rex puppet thing is just nuts. Yeah. So cool. But it still looks great after 25 years. That's awesome. Yeah. I want to control it. <laughs> <laughs> That's the dream. Yeah, I don't know that that'll happen, but it maybe. It probably won't, <laughs> but I can dream. And apparently in Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, maybe this is a spoiler. I don't really know when it's a spoiler. It counts as a spoiler. But there's going to be more scenes that will be indoors, so they'll be close to the dinosaurs. And we'll be seeing a new life-size animatronic T-Rex. Nice. Oh, that's so cool. I had assumed when they said that there were more animatronics than previous ones, 
that it just meant like the last one where they just had the end of a sauropod head sort of thing for like one close-up shot but they were just doing a few more if they're doing another life-size one that is awesome yeah i'm gonna look out and try to compare it to the cgi dinosaur see if i can tell the difference yeah i suppose whenever they're walking around that's probably cgi because that would just be so difficult to do with a puppet but they could do composites potentially where like the head is a real puppet and the feet are cgi things like that i think they do that sometimes with puppets even on stuff like sesame street sort of thing oh really well you know how they're like walking around sometimes yeah oh that's true forgot about that i was just thinking with the original jurassic park and the hydraulics i remember reading about because they were filming in hawaii and i think at one point a hurricane hit and it kind of set off their t-rex mm, yeah that's right <laughs> when they weren't expecting it to <laughs> <laughs> it's like shorting out in yeah. the hurricane yeah Hopefully these don't get damaged by hurricanes. I guess they're done shooting, so we probably would have heard about it if it happened. And I think they shot in London. Oh, okay. So indoors, probably. <laughs> this episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. <laughs> oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. And now on to our interview with Tony. We're here today with Tony Compagna, who is the collector of awesome dinosaur stuff, and he's also lived a pretty charmed dinosaur life as an SVP member, interviewer of numerous paleontologists, artists, creator of the Facebook group Plastic Paleontology, and also the man behind the popular Instagram account at The Dino Geek. Well, thanks, Tony, for joining us today. Well, thank you. How'd you first get involved with dinosaurs? Well, 
When I was a wee little one, uh, growing up in northern Illinois, we lived close to uh, a lot of train yards for some reason. And I was infatuated with trains. I was one of those kids that had a, a train track nailed to a great big sheet of plywood that my dad, when he felt up to it, would flip up on top of the kitchen table and let me run my trains in circles with no scenery or anything like that. Just the train in a circle is enough for me. And that lasted until one day in kindergarten, somewhere around 1975, which dates me. But our kindergarten teacher, who I remember calling Miss Gravy, I'm not sure what her real name was. Surely it wasn't Miss Gravy. But she introduced us to dinosaurs, and it was over. And uh, when I've casually talked to people and they say, you know, how did you fall in love with dinosaurs? Where did it start? I think it was the fact that as much as I liked being in the car at a train crossing and watching them roar by or playing with my trains, trains are stuck on a track, on a path. They have no free will. They can't go where they want to. And then all of a sudden, Miss Gravy brings to me these flesh and bone locomotives and things that roared and moved and did not have to follow the law of a track or a path. They could go where they wanted. They owned the road. They owned the world. And they were so much more in impressive and terrifying than any train or the length of any train or anything like that. I think that's what did it. Yeah, that's a really cool way of looking at it. I like the idea of them as like these powerful locomotives with sentience and all that kind of stuff. Yes. Well, and, you know, and then when we talked about them in the size, you know, you talk about some of these sauropods that are, I don't know, you always hear about bus lengths and things like that. I can't imagine how many boxcars long some of them are and what have you. But to think that all of a sudden, kind of in my imagination, I guess, as being kind of a creative, artistic person and stuff, uh, I guess I kind of could see several of them morphing off the track as one large creature and just again not being held to any rule about it had to stay on that path and i think there was a mixture of awe and maybe a little bit of terror that there were such things as these animals that and being an awesome teacher like she was she even taught us how to draw them my grandfather who worked in architecture and construction for years drafted designs and plans and stuff and then had his own spot in the basement where he listened to music and drew and you know it was a man cave before we called them man caves and he was bright enough, he'd take his grandson down there and let me sit at his drafting table. And we would draw trains and stuff together. And then when it switched, Grandpa was on it. He was helping me draw dinosaurs. And my grandmother was a great lover of books. She didn't buy us kids candy. She didn't buy us toys. She bought books. So then all of a sudden, I had this incredible dinosaur library. So once the bug hit me, I was greatly fed by everyone around me on that interest. And I've just been hooked ever since. So that's been 40 plus years now. <laughs> that's great. And you've interviewed a lot of big name paleontologists. You got Bob Bakker, Paul Sereno, Jack Horner, Phil Curry, Matthew Mossbrooker. How did you get your start into interviewing these people and getting these articles about them published? Well, I'm glad you asked that because I, I want to give a big thanks to Mike Fredericks and the dearly parted uh, Riff Smith who started Prehistoric Times magazine out of uh, Folsom, California. It's the only ongoing magazine for dinosaur enthusiasts and collectors, model builders, people who are into books, movies, anything and everything prehistoric. I got brave enough at one point. I asked Mike uh, Fredericks of the magazine, I said, I see people interviewing these dino celebs. Could I use the name of the magazine and contact Paul Serino, who I just, he was just my guy. Back in the day, I just thought if I was going to be a paleontologist, I want to be Paul Serino. 
And I think my wife was all for it, too, because he was a he was a pretty cute fella. I think those were her words. So Mike was all for it. He said, yeah. He said, please go ahead. Tell him you're with the magazine. Ask him if he'll he'll do an interview. And of course, the interview was always intended to be in the magazine. So Paul Serino was my first outreach and he was fantastic. Called him at the University of Chicago. He had to hang up two or three times because there were things going on, but he let me talk to him for about three hours. And then I I wrote the interview up in the way as a dino geek who would want to talk to one of these guys would want to see the interview. And so when I typed it up, every time he ummed or erred or he laughed or said, oh man, or gosh, or that's a good question, I wrote it verbatim. It took forever. This is old school tech. I was using a cassette player and a cassette recorder. I had it taped to the other phone in the house. That's how low tech it was. Actually, it was my daughter's Fisher Price cassette recorder with a mic. The mic was taped with the button pressed down on the phone. And But as soon as that interview uh, was published, I got a message secondhand from Mike Fredericks from uh, Don Glute, who's written so many dinosaur books on so many different levels and things. And he said something to the effect he thought was the best interview he'd ever read. And then as I've met people, and, you know, it's kind of weird because there's not a face to go with the articles. And this is pre-Facebook, pre-social media, so your picture's not out there where people can see you. When I did get a chance to talk to people, they thought they would make the comment, which always made me feel so good. They said, I felt like I was sitting right there in the room. I felt like I was a part of the conversation. I felt like I got to sit there and just be a fly on the wall. And I thought, yes, that's what I want. You mentioned before the <laughs> Dino Den. Can you tell us a little bit about what goes on there? Oh, okay. The Dino Den. If anybody's listening who's not familiar with my Instagram account, at the Dino Geek, all one word, I really thought much wasn't going to happen with that. I started taking pictures of my collection of the items I have in here where I'm sitting right now talking to you. I've got things made of ceramic and plastic and resin, books, papers, original art, things from all different ages. It's funny, a good friend of mine, well, my oldest friend, who's also my boss, kind of a weird thing, he came in the the dino den here today. He stopped by and he was looking around. I was showing him how I'd kind of worked on my studio area so I could work on some more art. And he's looking at a shelf where I've got all these ceratopsians lined up, looking like they want to charge off the edge of the shelf. And uh, he said, you know, Tony, he said, you know what I like about your collection? And I thought, well, this is interesting because he's not into dinosaurs at all. He collects cars. And I mean, real cars. And it's funny because he doesn't know the name of the dinosaurs. And I don't know the names of the cars, but we're still good buddies. He said, you know, the thing I like about your dinosaurs is, and he's looking at all these Schleich. He's looking at Collect A. He's looking at Safari. He's looking at Safari Unlimited. He's looking at Carnegie Collection. All these different types of really good looking dinosaur toys. But at back in the middle of them is a 3D printed bug-eyed bright red T-Rex, which was given to me by my friend Sean Warren who does a lot of 3D printing. He said, the thing I like about your collection is you've got all these good-looking models, and it's so serious and kind of sciencey. and then you've got this goofy guy standing back here in the back that just doesn't fit. He said, I love it. And it's funny because some of the weirdest things I have in my collection were given to me by the same guy. I have dinosaur squirt guns, and the only ones I have are because he gave them to me. So That's great. Yeah, Sean Warren mailed us one of those little T-Rex guys, too, oh, and yeah, it is awesome. Yeah, <laughs> Yes, but it's just kind of everything in here. And uh, one of the things I really like, and I would love to see this happen sometime. I don't know, maybe this interview would be the catalyst if the right person hears it. But I really think a small exhibit 
of dinosaur toys ought to be in a museum somewhere with the caption of teaching science through toys. Because in the dino den, I have things like the Marks Flintstones hunting party stegosaurus, which is so Gilmore, so early, early days reconstruction. And then all these companies are pushing things out, and I think they're keeping collectors in mind. And now you've got stegosaurs with the plates in a single row. You've got the tail up off the ground as all these younger listeners, you know, that's the only way they've seen it and understand it to be. They don't understand it's the new way, and a lot of thought has changed over time. But I, I can envision showing the old-school sculptures of the toys and, and how they progressed or evolved, if you will, to the, the new school of thought and uh, how my generation and, and ones not far from mine have seen the science reflected in the toys and in the collectibles. And I think if some folks could have those side by side, they might be surprised. There might be some kids who'd be like, why does that one look that way? Why are all these raptors naked from the 70s and the, you know, the 80s? And they have no feathers. What's going on? Yeah, who plucked that dinosaur? Exactly. I think something fun could could happen there. But the dino den's just where I worked on comics. It's where I've drawn. It's where I do my sculpting. It's my place to kind of just get away from everything. There's a whole lot of nostalgia in here. From my little couch that I'm sitting on, I, I can look at a great big monogram revel snap tight green t-rex model which i remember getting at christmas at grandma's one year and i took it out of the box and snapped it all together didn't take any glue i snapped it all together and my dad when it was time to load up my presents and my brother's presents and mom and dad's presents and drive back home he's like why did you put that together already where is it gonna go in the car and you said on my lap it's about three feet long you know it's, it's a great big wonderful kit and again it reflects that old school view about dinosaurs which is the views that I grew up with. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of memory, a lot of history, a lot of fun with that. Yeah, I really like that. A lot of times people talk or ask me about Jurassic Park and if that's realistic and all that. And I always give a caveat that like Jurassic Park was incredibly realistic at the time. And it's a really good snapshot of what 90s paleontology was all about. It was like a really revolutionary movie in terms of quick moving dinosaurs and their posture and everything. But then people kind of often look back at it and they think like, oh, it's so unrealistic. Look the way they're standing, whatever. But that's what science is about. It's always this progression. Like all science is eventually wrong. It's always iterative. So a dinosaur toy is a really good way to kind of show that. That's a really cool idea. Right. You know, it's funny that getting ready for this and, and telling you all a little bit more about me and who I talked to, Jurassic Park brings back one really good memory. I interviewed Karen Chin, who is a specialist in coprolites and i got to talk to her and interview her met her in person at svp very very nice but paleo people are just the best people anyway almost every one of them will talk to you they'll put up with your silliness your questions that somebody else in another profession would probably roll their eyes and be like you know go away but paleo people are not like that but to get to the memory that caused all that rambling i remember asking karen chin i said okay jurassic park you know what scene I'm going to ask you about being a person who studies copper lights. I said, surely there was no sauropod or anything that could have made the great big pile of, mm, as Goldblum's character, as Malcolm said. And she said, there's not a dinosaur who could get its tiny up that high. And it would surely be a very sick animal to make such a deposit. And that's just the thing. I mean, again, just being blessed and having the opportunity uh, 
I guess part of what maybe helps for better interviews is if you have good insight, you're kind of creative. It just gave a great way to start that talk and, and to chat with her, and it was fun. And then for me, when I watch Jurassic Park, it's not just a movie. There's other things tied to it, those experiences and getting to talk to people. So, Just going back to your collection, do you have a favorite piece? Oh, wow. You know, I'd like to give you the, the typical, oh, they're all my children and I don't have a favorite. No, that's not true. I do. I think I'm fortunate that I've been collecting long enough that my friends and my family know what I'd like. It's getting harder for them because they don't know what I already have. And honestly, I as the years have progressed, every now and then I bring back something from going out to flea markets and yard sales and junk sales and this and there. And I'm very proud of it. And I come to bring it home and put it on the shelf in the right spot. And it already has a twin waiting on it when I get home. But all of the gifts, my friend Dave, who, like I said, was here earlier today, who's my boss, neatest thing ever, my birthday this year, I went out to my car, which, of course, has dinosaur stickers on it, the dinosaur hunting mobile. There was a note on the under the windshield wiper with a little rhyme, and there was a gift. And my friend had found a series of six or seven dinosaurs in a collection, and he had hidden them all over town and turned it into a scavenger hunt. It's funny. But then again, it was September in southeast Arkansas. It was about 150 degrees outside. But my daughter was home. She's grown. She was home from Florida. And she went with me. And my wife went. We had a ball running all over this town. And he did it right. We went from one end of town to the other and back and forth. And we had a good time. So the gifts are wonderful. I love all my gifts. I don't sell those. I don't trade those. I don't get rid of those. They're not in a box where I can't see them. By the way, one little peeve of mine. I'm just going to throw this out here for any collectors who are listening, don't collect them. If you're going to put them in hiding, if you're going to put them in storage, what's the point? How can you enjoy them? I'm going to get on my soapbox for a minute. Put them out somewhere. Now, if you're bringing them in and you rotate them out, okay, like the collections at museums, they can't show it all at once. I get that. But if you're putting them in buckets and putting them in storage, why? Don't do that. Anyway, okay, back to your question. My favorite piece, my favorite piece Stegosaurs and Brachiosaurs are my favorites. I have two Stegosaurs that are in the lead for favorite. One is that Mark's Flintstone Hunting Party Stegosaurus, only because it's in a wonderful light shade of gray front to back. It's one color. It reflects Charles Knight kind of style. It reflects Gilmore style. It reflects the black and white pictures in the early geology books and dinosaur books that I, I grew up with and I loved. I, I absolutely love that early Here's the first anybody gets to see what a dinosaur looks like kind of sculpture. You know what I'm saying? And I was able to get that. That was an eBay find. And I had a friend who is also a collector. And he said, are you seeing anything? Is there anything you're after? And I said, well, I'm trying to win this auction. And it's just going up and up and up. And I said, it's above my reach. And he stepped in and said, look, I'm going to make sure you win this. You pay me back when you can. And this was a new friend. This is the first guy, Luis Rodriguez, who joined Plastic Paleontology when I started it two or three years ago. And Luis just stepped up. He just said, I'll do it. He said, pay me what you can when you can. I'll hold it for you. And he did. So the fact that it's tied to that friendship is this piece that has this look to it. Just wonderful. And then right behind it, as many wonderful toys as I have, all these different lines with the reflection of this age or that belief or this science or or whatever, from realistic to gaudy to whatever. The other big favorite, 
and I hope it doesn't hurt anybody's feelings who's ever given me a dinosaur, is I went to the Morrison Museum of Natural History a few years back to meet Matt Mossbrucker face-to-face. He was in the National Geographic special, The Dinosaur Autopsy. And I interviewed him through email, and then I got a chance to go out and actually meet him at the museum. Uh, wonderful side note, that's where Dr. Bacher is hiding out a whole lot these days, these last few years. So he was there as well, so it was like a double bonus to go. But their wonderful museum, it's very deceptive. When you pull up to the Morrison Museum, and I realize I'm rambling again, but people who love dinosaurs are going to be all for it, I hope. But when you pull up to the Morrison Museum, it looks like a little two-story log cabin house, and you're like, what could be in there? Is this worth my time to pull in here and stay? Oh my goodness, the dinosaur goodness that is in that museum. The way they have utilized the space in there is just fantastic. You will see stuff in there that you don't see at any other museum. You'll see the tracks of infant stegosaurs walking or running on their hind legs. You will see infant to young yearling sauropod tracks where they have reared up and moved on their back legs. You will see incredible sculptures by Shane folks of Cretaceous Creations. Shane is a heck of a guy, an incredible sculptor. His kits and his models are just amazing. And in the Morrison, this is why I went all the way back to answer this question. In there, they created, or Shane did, and uh, I think there was another sculptor involved. It was a joint project. They created a life-sized infant stegosaur that is rearing up on its back legs and standing like that. And the feet fit the tracks that they have there in the rock. So, so it's this wonderful life representation of this animal at that size. And they have two of them fully painted in two different places in the museum. And then Matt Mossbrucker in his office had a third one that had yet to be painted. And I thought, if ever I get the chance to own an actual piece that could be in a museum. I had met Shane before early when he started his career making model kits and stuff. I thought if I could ever own a museum piece, I will. So I left after being out there at the museum, and I was surprised by my brother to find out that our grandparents had left us an inheritance. I didn't know anything about that. Like I say, I come from a family that didn't have much money, and I'm not saying that it was an incredible inheritance, but you know, any free money is good money. But it was a nice little chunk, and I went to my wife and I said, listen, surprise, we're, we're getting some inheritance money, but... I'm going to buy a really nice dinosaur. After a lengthy discussion, and by the way, I have an incredibly supportive wife. Fortunately, she kind of keeps me in reign or all of this would really be out of control. This is, again, the very long answer to finally say favorite dinosaur. The Marks is a favorite one. And then, of course, I did contact Shane folks and got a copy of that infant stegosaur. Built by Shane, painted by Shane. And then we actually drove up to Missouri and I picked it up in person because I did not want it shipped. So it is by far one of the largest pieces I have. It's certainly the most expensive piece I had. I wouldn't spend that much again on another dinosaur, but I had that one opportunity, that one chance, and to have a piece that I realize one day all of this is going to have to go. There's going to come a time I'm going to have to downsize as I get older, unless I have grandchildren who want to take it all and do something with it, like put it on a shelf and not play with it. Unless I have some future little museum curators in my family of this collection, I just see that being a piece that will be like the one that stays with me. And also the fact that, you know, it came from grandma and grandpa, which again, you know, like you said, what's going on in the dinosaur den? Like I say, this is just really a big room full of memories. I'm sure I'm on the, my wife works for special ed. She's, she's told me several times and it's not a joke. It's not to be silly. She's like, Tony, you're on the spectrum. 
when you can go in there and I can point to anything in your collection and you know the day and the time and where you were when you got it. A very Sheldon-esque kind of thing, you know, referring to Sheldon from Big Bang Theory, you know. It's your version of his flags. Yeah, well, it's funny because she keeps, whenever we see an episode with fun with flags, she's like, why aren't you doing fun with dinosaurs? But as you two have learned with me getting a crash course in Skyping, the Dino Geek is not quite ready to jump into YouTube and, and that kind of thing yet. But I don't know, maybe, maybe sometime. But whew, yeah, that was a long answer. Two Stegosauruses, that's the long backstory. Those are my favorites. Well, those are great stories. <laughs> yeah. Thank you. There you go. Since you mentioned Plastic Paleontology, the Facebook group, can you tell us what inspired you to start that group? Oh, well, thanks. I appreciate the opportunity to, to talk about that. Facebook is a wonderful medium, or, or, or can be, for like-minded people to find each other. One of the things that made Prehistoric Times magazine so fantastic when it came out was, well, and still now, it's the only one out there doing it. It's the only ongoing fanzine where these people spread out all over the world. That magazine has a worldwide circulation. People all over the world found a place where they could talk to other like-minded people with their passion. Pre-social media, pre-internet, pre-email, it was hard to run into these people. There was no Comic-Con for dinosaur people. There was no Dino Fest in those early days. There was none of that stuff. SVP is not really the place for all the toy buying geeks really to get together and stuff. It's much more professional and, and whatnot, even though a lot of those guys have a lot of toys in their offices and the ladies. But when Facebook arrived and I saw there were interest groups who were like-minded in finding each other, I decided to start the group mainly for us dinosaur hunters, us plastic paleontologists, the one going out after these remnants of resin and paper and whatnot. It was just a good place to go and brag, really. I mean, just to be honest, it was a bragging place. It was a place to go. I found a whole set of Mark's dinosaurs in the early colors at a yard sale for $2. The lady just had them in a box or you know, somebody, I went to a church yard sale and they had a whole set of papos sitting there. It was just somebody's grandson just got tired of them. Or, and so it just turned to a place for hunters to get together and just share their hunting stories, you know. And uh, it was really weird because I didn't know anybody. But slowly, people seemed to find it somehow. It was the only one out there with that setup. Now, there was a couple, and there still are some dinosaur collector groups. I'm not sure how many folks are in them. I'm not. I don't want to get in any kind of spot where I'm comparing or trying to call numbers. I, I really don't know, and it's never been about that. But folks started coming in, and it was a place to also post pictures and show your collection. I mean, I'm down here in southeast Arkansas, and driving down the street, you'd have no idea that this collection's sitting in this house. If you saw me at Walmart, you wouldn't know necessarily I'm a dinosaur guy, even though every T-shirt I have has a dinosaur. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm getting there quickly, too. Right. But here's this wonderful thing with social media where we can share our collections and our pictures and our stories. And then it, it slowly evolved into a place where people were able to go, well, I'm looking for, or I have two of, or what have you, and, and people were sharing and selling and swapping. And some of the neatest things have happened. We've had people who said, when I was a kid, I had such and such dinosaur. Oh, I wish I had it. And there's a couple of folks on there, I'm one of them, who've been able to track down and find these missing pieces of their childhoods and either get them to them or lead them to an auction or someone else who had them. And it's all of these people having all these warm fuzzies reminiscing and pulling these things together and sharing their stories and look what I found and kind of hating each other sometimes out of a little jealousy here and there, you know, or 
But it's also been a really neat place. It's funny because I just talked to Dr. Bob Bacher and Matt Mossbrucker the other day to make sure I had this right for my naming or analogy. But we have some really good Sternbergs in our group. And by that, there's one in particular, Luis Rodriguez, who, again, is the oldest member of, of plastic paleontology other than myself. He was the first one to join. Lewis is in Washington State and apparently works some kind of truck route, delivery route or something. So he's able to hit every Goodwill and every secondhand store and all these. And Lewis is going into, if you will, the Badlands and finding and discovering all these dinosaurs and things. And then he comes back and he comes to plastic paleontology and he uploads his pictures and he has this all spread out. And all of us home museum curators and plastic paleontologists who are looking for things for our collections see these and they are for sale. And he's wonderful about selling and trading. And again, still dinosaur people, really good people. The people in our group, I noticed the other day, were up to 700 members. I never would have thought we'd be in the 700 or 600s or 300s. You just don't know how many people out there are into it. I mean, you go to Toys R Us, you see toys, you know people are going to be buying them. But you don't know how many people are out there. Lewis is a good guy. You know, a lot of them are. They come on and they say, well, I picked these up and they don't sell them for much above what they did. You know, you got to cover your shipping. You got to cover your time. You you know, you're not out there to lose money. I mean, that's just natural. Nobody wants to do that. But it's just this wonderful community. Plastic paleontology is just this wonderful community where people have come in and found new pieces of their childhood or they've seen something. And they don't know where to find it or where to get it or what's a reasonable price. And we just all talk about it together. The other day, there was a conversation, what are your favorite five pieces in your collection? Or, you know, when did you start? And it's also just a really neat place because age is not an issue. That's something that's really neat about it. That's one of the things that's kind of fun with my Instagram account is I have a lot of young people and people of different ages and from all over the world and things. And they want to build a collection or they're just starting to find things. And here's all these people who can help. I can't tell you how many times I've seen people who just gave stuff. When Dan LaRusso, who was one of the sculptors behind the original Batat dinosaur line, fabulous dinosaurs in the early 90s, they're at Target now under the Terra collection. Dan LaRusso is an incredible guy. He sculpted the life-size T-Rex that's at the Boston Museum of Science now. Dan passed away a couple years ago uh, from cancer, I believe, uh, complications from or from cancer. And one of our members, a gifted artist in his own right, Eric Warren, who is a cancer survivor, right after Dan had passed and Dan was a good friend of his, wanted to see how many of us would donate dinosaurs and send them to a children's hospital. And, oh my goodness, just the pile started coming in and people forgot about shipping costs and buying stuff for their own collection or I need to... It sounds like a really great community. It is. And so drama-free. So drama-free. We don't have anybody fussing each other or calling somebody a cheater. I didn't get my stuff in a trade or any of that negative stuff. And like I say, wonderful things like that happen. Helping other people build their collections. Sending toys to the children's hospital. Eric Warren, again, was behind a recent drive, I think, to collect some dinosaurs for different schools. You know, the teachers were using them in the classroom, and then the kids could play with them. And people just came out of the woodwork. I mean, they just stepped up. Guys like Sean Warren, the guy who prints the 3D dinosaurs and stuff. I still don't know how he does it, and I'm not questioning it because I love it. But I think he used to sell dinosaurs in some fashion or another, brand new. And he stepped up and donated a bunch of brand new dinosaurs. This wasn't secondhand goodies, you know. And when I say dinosaur people are just the best. Yeah, they really are. And I guess that's probably why we get so long-winded when we get a chance to talk to each other. 
That's why SVP is such a great place to go to, too. Yes, yes. One of the things, though, that kind of tempered all of the writing and all of the drawing and all of the, the travel was that none of it ever paid for itself. I will say that anybody who's interested in Prehistoric Times magazine that does not know this, it's a wonderful magazine. Mike is a swell guy, but you donate your stuff. Your publicity and a free copy of the magazine, or maybe he gives you a subscription, is the return you get, which when you're starting out, very exciting, very amazing, very fun. But it is work. Taking those road trips, taking those plane trips, and spending that money starts to add up and kind of tempers the experience a little bit. Just, again, PT is a wonderful magazine, and if anybody out there is a wanting to be paleo artist or is one or wants to interview people and get out there like I did, that opportunity is still there. I know Mike would be all too happy for somebody to turn in an interview or pictures or artwork of their own. And yeah, you'll get in there. And as he'll tell you, although the magazine doesn't pay, a lot of people have gone on to be commissioned artists or to end up writing and submitting it to a newspaper or some other magazine or publication. And uh, you'll find most of the people you want to talk to or places you want to get pictures of, folks are accommodating. And one of the other things, and I didn't know what to expect. Like I say, I don't come from a family or a background of academia or higher learning. I kind of expected some of these more uh, highly educated people to be kind of snooty or look down their nose at people who have not put in the time or have the background. But no one has ever, in all of my experiences, ever made me feel stupid or ignorant or, you know, I might have been corrected on pronunciation of a dinosaur name or something like that. But again, I just don't know. My interests are very, very limited. Dinosaurs are my thing. I don't know if in other fields... You can have that kind of conversation with professionals and they treat you, I feel like, almost as much as an equal or just another person who likes what they like, which, again, just makes for a wonderful thing. And, you know, and when these people are talking to the generations of paleontologists to come and the paleo artists to come and the writers to come, you know, how does that not just feed it and keep it going, which is just a great thing. So, yeah, it's it's all good. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us today. So the best places if people want to find out more about you would be Plastic Paleontology Group on Facebook and your Instagram at The Dino Geek. Is there anywhere else? Right now, there's not. There is a book in the works. Uh, there is a book about plastic paleontology, and hopefully no one would try to beat me to the punch sharing, but it just greatly parallels, I don't know for lack of a better word, real paleontology. The hunting, the thrill of discovery, where do you look? You have to have a grant no matter where you're hunting. Everybody's got to have their John Hammond because it's not free. Whether you're getting rocks, bones out of the rock, or you're going to the flea market, somebody's got to pay. Curating your collections, the history, writing things up, talking about, displaying. It's really interesting if you spend the time thinking about how they parallel each other. So that is in the works currently. Uh, Matt Mossbrucker and Dr. Bob have been fantastic. They're helping me with it. And hopefully, you know, we'll see that, I, I would hope, within a year or so. Yeah, right now, Plastic Paleontology on Facebook, it says it's a private group. group. Send a membership notice. We'll put you in immediately. And then again, at the Dino Geek, you can see more toys and collectibles than you probably ever thought you'd ever see. So, yeah, look us up. Look us up. The more the merrier. Awesome. Well, thanks again. Yeah, thank you so much. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. Thanks again, Tony. Our listener, Sean, from the Instagram account, 
Paleo Trailer LLC actually recommended that we talk to Tony. And as soon as he recommended him and I reached out, I realized we were going to hear a lot of really great stories. Yeah. And it was actually, it was really difficult because Tony has many more great stories, but we couldn't fit them in all. Yeah. Fascinating. And such cool dinosaur pictures on the Instagram. I just saw one where Theodore Rex is the head of Theodore Rex from that really terrible Whoopi Goldberg movie under his desk, just like this huge head. It's like, well, how do you have that? That's just amazing. <laughs> <laughs> you should check out his Instagram and see all the cool stuff he has. He posts about it really often. And he's also lately been posting a lot of the new Jurassic World stuff. Yeah, especially the toys. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now for our dinosaur of the day, Microceratus, which you can see Microceratus in Jurassic World on a brochure that was made as a movie prop and on the Jurassic World website. And it's also mentioned in the first Jurassic Park book. This is continuing our series of Jurassic Park, Jurassic World dinosaurs that we're going over from now until Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom. Which essentially turned into lesser known dinosaurs because we've already done all the big name ones. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Microceratus was a ceratopsian that lived in the Cretaceous and what is now the Gobi Desert in Mongolia. Its name means small horned and it was first described in 1953 by Bolin and named Microceratops. But Microceratops was already the name of a wasp, which I don't know, maybe I'm just so used to ceratops. So I think, what? why was that a wasp name? Maybe they really like dinosaurs. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Mateus gave it a new name in 2008, Microceratus. And the type species is Microceratus gobiensis. Partial remains have been found, but most of the material found was reassigned to Gracilaceratops. Microceratus was small, it was about 2 feet or 0.6 meters long, and it had a frill and a beak that it used to bite off vegetation. And the frill was small, it was probably used for display. It was herbivorous, it ate ferns, cycads, and conifers, and it was bipedal with short arms. It was also probably fast and agile, though it may have been prey for small dromaeosaurs and troodonts. Nice. It reminds me of the micro enantiornith that we talked about earlier. Because it's small? Yeah, and it starts with micro. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and our fun fact of the day is that Steven Spielberg has made more money by far than any other director, in small part due to Jurassic Park. And with Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom, he'll likely be the top grossing producer again as well. 
So I was surprised that he wasn't the top grossing producer, but looking at who number one is now and also number three, I think he's in the number two spot. They're both related to superhero movies. So yeah, there are a couple producers who produce a ton of these like Avengers type movies and have really shot up. So he's at like $7 billion and they're a little bit above him. But as director, he's like three times as much as the next one down because all those different superhero movies use different directors usually. It's made a lot of really successful movies. Hopefully Jurassic World 2 Fallen Kingdom is also amazing and high grossing. I always hope that these continue to be very successful because if they're very successful, they'll make more of them. <laughs> as soon as there's one flop and it kind of all falls apart like with Jurassic Park 3. But then it came back. It did. So but... just give it 20 years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And also join us on Patreon, our growing community, patreon.com slash I Know Dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.